Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Nick and Jake. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Mick. Welcome back to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. I'm joined, as usual, by fellow iOS developer, my good friend, Jake Gunderson. And also joining us for this episode is iOS developer and RayWenderlich.com Swift team member, Gemma Barlow. Thanks for joining us, Gemma. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Now, Gemma, I've put 20 minutes on the clock. What would you like to talk about? Sounds great. Well, because I am on the Swift team, I really want to just chat a little bit about Swift 3 and some of the upgrades that will be pending for a lot of our listeners out there. I wanted to kind of talk through some recent personal experiences and headaches that myself and my colleagues have had getting our code base kind of test migrated up to Swift 3, which is something that often has to happen um, with language changes just generally through Xcode. is a little bit more important because Swift 3 syntax introduces a ton of breaking changes that basically affect all almost every file in your code base. So I thought it might be really helpful just to hear about some of our experiences in that area and kind of what we've done so far to try and anticipate and reduce the impact of um, of that work on our overall schedule. So did you, were you in day one soon as, um, I, I could take it a step further back than actually that because obviously we've had the access to the, the open source repo. So we've obviously been aware of some of the changes that have come in on. Have you been following those closely and and uh, accessing the nightly builds or did you actually wait until sort of the first beta of, of Xcode 8? I have been keeping a little eye on it but I'm definitely not in the nightly builds at, at, in any any sense. I wish I was. I wish I had time for that. Um, really I think the thing that made uh, myself and my colleague uh, think that perhaps it was going to be a little bit more challenging this time was um, during WWDC some of the Apple engineers were uh, repeatedly requesting that people actually try out the migrator, which is the tool that's going to automatically upgrade your code um, on their code base and submit radars uh, to them about things that may not work. So I think that they had a sense then, perhaps they've been testing as well, that things may not be as smooth as, as they have been in the past and kind of wanted to hear what problems people had. One of the stories that I had heard uh, probably about a couple of years ago was to do with one of the big San Francisco companies having problems where the migrator just wouldn't finish. Their code base was so large that the migrator <laughs> wouldn't finish and they had to do a lot of the upgrades manually. And so I think that may have been Swift 2.2. And so, yeah, they were definitely actively requesting feedback, which set off my spidey sense in terms of giving it like a rating on performance then you you've obviously you got an existing code base you download xcode 8 you open it up what what's the hit rate for the migrator like how good does it work in sort of in the current build compared to you know where where obviously we'd all like it to be where it would all just automatically happen in the background? Great question. So just for a bit of context, we've got about 400 files in our code base and about 50,000 lines of code, roughly, I would suggest. And um, so the migrator itself finished fairly quickly. No problems there. It got through everything. And it seemed to make good choices just generally. There weren't too many things that it was actively trying to correct that that were just incorrect or and there was no kind of misalignment in where it was trying to place the correction. But what we did find is when we hit save, we thought, great, the migrator has finished. Um, the upgrade is complete. Let's give it a run. <laughs> um, at that point, we realized that a lot of the things that had changed, 
um, particularly changes that were very common across the code base, had been changed in one spot, but the actual scope of that variable perhaps may have been in a lot wider ranging, and the changes really needed to be propagated a lot further than they were actually propagated. So it looked like it, it had been successful for a lot of cases, things like lower casing variable names, lower casing enum case um, names, things like that. But actually what we found was we saved it, we tried to run it. There are about three other instances of that particular variable that hadn't been corrected. Okay, but I mean, it does sound as though for something, I'm not sure what sort of expectations people have about that type of tool, but, you know, I would set my expectations quite low, but it seems to be that, but that, that, I mean, it, it does work in some capacity, it's just not sort of all the way there at the minute. Absolutely, yeah. And I would expect that um, that we're still pretty early on, so you, you are right, like we wouldn't expect it to work perfectly. I think uh, what, what we're actually trying to do to to correct some of these problems, I guess, for us is um, create that test run of the migrator, um, have a branch that's actually upgraded, but then we're planning on much closer to the actual um, Xcode release date, rerunning the migrator and hoping that a lot of these, these issues have been fixed up. My colleague is also opening um, Radars, which I think is really useful. Um, so the general process that we're using actually is that for each of, we've got both stylistic changes and functional changes coming in Swift 3. Um, some of the stylistic changes are those lowercase variables and enum statements that I mentioned. And what we're actually planning to do um, to kind of take some of the load off the migrator in a relatively large code base is to actually make some of these changes ahead of time. So there's no problem with running with kind of lower casing our variables right now in Swift 2.2 and there's no problem with lower casing our enums, enum statements right now in 2.2. So actually kind of porting some of those changes that the migrator would otherwise have to do for us um, back into our code brace just so that when the migrator does actually run and we take a, a look at the PR and the diff between what the migrator has done for us and our regular um, line of development there's a lot more clarity in the types of changes that the migrator is making for us and that hopefully will allow us to kind of get better code review happening. Because the other thing that you don't want to be doing when you running automated code is kind of accidentally introducing replicated bugs everywhere, and so yeah. the, the the more accurately, the more cleanly I think we can separate out those changes, the the more accurately we can review our code and prevent those bugs. I mean, I think it's great that you're taking a sort of a proactive approach. Like, what what can we change now that that is supported by Swift 2.2, that you know is then going to be enforced by Swift 3 and, and, and therefore we can be one step ahead because that would sort of be my only other worry about relying on something like the migrator is, you know, it is an automated tool and, you know, there is not a high chance, but there is some chance that itself could introduce some bugs into our code base. Even what you were saying there about it changes one variable sort of maybe within the scope of the declaration or whatever. But then if that's used elsewhere, either within that source file or beyond that source file, then it missed that one well then you like you said you know you've got a you've got a compilation issue so it is a bug you know and then you've got to go and find out and fix it and that would be my only concern but i mean it, it does sound like you're taking a really good approach to, to sort of this migration as a whole I think it, it definitely was something that we had to give, had to give a lot of thought to, and so we don't want to we don't want to do extra work that the migrator will actually do for us. But just as a preventative measure, um, I think on particularly large code bases, um, I feel like our, our code base actually is like a medium sized code base. But um, on particularly large code bases, I definitely encourage people to get going now and just just try things out. You don't necessarily have to keep the changes, but I think there's value in taking a look at what it's going to do um, to your code. I think the the other big change that really means that, that it's going to change 
change it's going to touch every file is the fact that now we've got this change from Swift 2.2 to Swift 3 where your first parameter of your method and function names are going to be labeled so that basically means that it's going to try and touch every function or method that you have in your code and that also just makes things a little bit difficult to read so it's good good to kind of just get a sense of what that looks like and and how you could split that up potentially have you run into any any sort of serious or sort of more complex upgrade issues. So, for instance, I mean, some of the stuff we've touched on is relatively straightforward, you know, that we could all deal with and isn't really perhaps, say, a language change, but more of a a rule that's being enforced by the language going forward. But, you know, I'm sure I I haven't really dug really deep into into what's coming in Swift 3 uh, other than, you know, what's been publicised a lot since you know it was announced and obviously we can look at the the documents on the on the official repo but i was wondering if you'd run into anything that perhaps meant that you had to take a stand back and maybe rethink a, a part of your code because of some of the changes that are coming in rather than it just being kind of a small syntax change or you know yeah that is a great question um actually i think one of the areas that is really a little bit of a hangover from objective c is that we actually have a lot not a lot but we have some inheritance in our code basically anywhere that's that's still do it using inheritance rather than um, kind of composition that's an area that whilst is not going to break with the migrator i think it can feel strange to fix things perhaps that the migrator is throwing up when actually a different approach would be better the actually a lot of that for us has come up around core data functionality Um, so we may have had objects and a little bit of inheritance going on there and it's not swift 3 specific but definitely ios 10 specific a lot of the core data functionality is changing Um, and so we're, we're definitely kind of have our eye on that and thinking about how to make better use of generics with respect to core data. If we're going to be losing a lot of the core data files, what that what impact that might have for us. So just making sure that things, if you've got a core data model object and associated class right now, making sure that anything that you've kind of custom written on that isn't an extension um, to the to the model object. Can you give our listeners, those that maybe haven't been paying attention to the the Swift 3 additions, kind of a broad overview of what they can expect to need to change some of the, some of the major categories. Cause I've, I've used it a little bit and I've noticed some things and I'm actually quite happy with all the changes. I've noticed that I, the code I write now, I like better, but I'm, I'm guessing that for me, there's gaps, things that I just haven't hit yet um, that I'm unaware that I'm going to need to change. Yeah. And in general, I think that everything actually is much better. Uh, kind of four things spring to mind there. One is that a lot of the times where you've got an NS prefix, your class name is going to be changed. Uh, the Apple provided class name is going to change from NS to just your regular version. So I'm trying to think of an example of that. Actually, I hit NS date the other day. I had a bunch of NS date statements and they, those all changed to date. Yeah, that's that's a good one. Um, so actually what the only, the only challenge that that will throw up is that if you've been naming your custom written classes and things like date <laughs> you're then going to get a little bit of conflict um, between NS date and, and when it's when it's automatically migrated to date you're going to get variable names being lowercase which is quite nice and looks quite good and is more of an approved style for Swift 3 you're going to get uh, ename cased uh, names being lowercase and then as I mentioned before the function and method, the labeled um, params. And they're kind of the big noisy ones, I would say. Everything else is fairly straightforward. The migrator can help you with it or you'll get a little fix it later on in Xcode. I think that they're probably the the, the main ones that spring to mind. Yeah. I did notice that um, the dispatch 
Q syntax is much more friendly. I, I was happy about that. That is great. Yeah, we had actually uh, written up some uh, cleaner versions of that for use within our code base anyway, and I suspect a lot of people actually had. Like they'd try to they'd try to take anything that was particularly nasty about the language and make their own pretty categories or extensions and things like that. Core graphics was another one with the exact same thing, where the core graphics. API is much swiftier now. Much swiftier, yeah. And that's a, just a general theme. I think things are getting really, really nice. If you really enjoy writing in Swift, you're going to love Swift 3. And I, so I think that's another reason that we do want to do this work and do it well and kind of ASAP. Pretty excited to get over to um, to the new state of the world. So some of those changes you just mentioned there, uh, two that I'm aware of is the the uh, Grand Central Dispatch changes and the uh, Core Graphics changes that Jake mentioned. Can, like, can you mix and match in Swift 3? Or is it literally, you know, it is a breaking change, the old one is out and, you know, you can't use the old API, you do have to move to the to the new API? Yeah, most of these changes are breaking. What you can do, and somebody reminded us about this, and thank goodness they did actually, is that you can actually do a, co a compiler check to, and to say whether you're um, using Swift, you're compiling against Swift 2.3 or Swift 3. Sorry, actually, we're using it right now to check whether we're compiling against Swift 2.2 or 2.3, but they are breaking changes um, in a lot of these situations. And so, yeah, you do want to expect that you're going to have to make these changes and you want to continue to run against Swift 3 um, from then on. Yeah, that, that does worry me um, mm. a little bit, only because we have a Swift 2.3 uh, Mac app that is 95% uh, car graphics. So, yeah, and it's, you know, several thousand lines ago. Just to be specific, tangible about this, the, the, in core graphics, instead of calling, you know, CG, context, fill, rect, or whatever, those long C statements, it's now context dot in the function. And so it's different enough. I mean, structurally, logically, it's very similar, but the, the, it's not like adding an extra parameter at the beginning of a function call. Like, it's, it's a significant amount of typing if you have to change it. So if the migrator doesn't do the job right in that case, and you've got a lot of code like that, you're going to have to, it's going to take some time. That is interesting because we don't, we don't make intense use of core graphics. I'm working on an e-commerce application. And so um, uh, have, thankfully we don't have much of that going on. Um, but yeah, you're right. Anything that is, is a, that little bit more complex is just going to take extra review time as well, I think. As a member of the Swift team on raywendlick.com, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are eager to learn sort of what's going to happen with regards to all our written content and Swift 3. Now, I know Ray put out a post saying that all our current book lineups will be updated to Swift 3 for free. Uh, not that easy to say. Uh, but in terms of the rest of our written content, is this something that you and the wider Swift team and Ray Fix, the guy that leads the team, um, are already on with like is this something that's happening in the background are discussions taking place have you been looking at the uh, changes that have been coming for quite some time as i mentioned we've had access to the to the repo for some time now we know what's been coming um i'm just curious as to how that's been handled on the site given how much swift content we have great question actually a question that i posed again to ray yesterday uh, ray fix because uh, i had a, a new tutorial coming out and wanted to make sure if and when i should be upgrading that to swift 3 and I think it's a little bit unknown at the moment. Um, things that have happened and progress that is being made is that uh, we've updated the uh, Ray Wendelik Star Guide. 
um, with Swift 3 um, stylistic changes. So that's really good. That's out there. I'd recommend people go have a look at that if you're wondering about whether, like, what you might like to adapt in your own Swift writing um, to kind of keep things nice and fresh. Tutorial-wise, I think that each of our tutorials actually goes through a review process um, every six months, I think. And so I would say that we'll actually try and do it, look at the, the tutorial itself or the article itself and see how like relevant it will be ongoing and then update throughout that six-month process. But I think it'll be up to the individual authors if they're really excited about Swift 3 and have written a tutorial tutorial fairly recently, I'd recommend and probably think that they're excited also to upgrade it uh, for people. I think definitely um, it'll need to be called out at the top of the articles as well, just kind of what version of Swift it was running on so that people can, can know pretty easily how, how recently it was written and, and whether or not it's going to work for them. We only have a few minutes left, but just kind of as a final question, you did mention in terms of the migrator, uh, one specific failure case. Are there any others that people should be on the lookout for? So you mentioned variable scoping and not kind of fixing all the places it should fix. Any other things that you've hit that that people should be looking out for? Um, I think you can sometimes get conflicts between variable names as well. So if, if you've happened to name something, if you have happened to lowercase, I don't know, perhaps you've, you've lowercase some variables in your application and not others, you might end up with some naming conflicts. One thing that I have seen in the migrator in the past that I would also keep an eye out for is um, it just not actually applying the fix at the right onto the right line. So if you had a line of code that it was trying to edit, it's actually missed a little bit. And I saw this a lot with the do catch statements um, going from 1.2 um, to 2. It would kind of place uh, the, the catch statements in the wrong spot and you'd again go to compilation issues. So nothing that you won't notice, but uh, definitely stuff that will require a little bit of manual fixing. That said, I strongly encourage people to up upgrade to Swift 3. I think it's, it's gorgeous and the language itself is beautiful. So um, it should be an exciting process to have a nice, clean, freshly upgraded code base. Okay, guys, I'm going to have to jump in there. I'm afraid, Gemma, that's all the time we've got for your topic this episode. That was great to get some insight on what sort of real-world upgrade to Swift 3 is going to look like, and I'm sure our audience appreciate that insight that you've given us. Now, before we move on to Jake's topic, we are just going to take a short break and hear about the uh, sponsor for this episode. The app stores are crowded and very few apps are making money. A cool new startup, Pies, that's P-Y-Z-E, has a free mobile intelligence platform that automates app growth to develop loyal users through personalized engagement. Pies provides behavior-based real-time insights without segmentation and automates in-app and push messages to build meaningful relationships with each user, all without the time, effort and cost required by today's big data analytics solutions. If you've got an app, you have to try Pies. It's free and can help you grow. Listeners of our podcast get access to cool advanced features now over at learn.pies.com forward slash RW. Use Pies and start automating your app's growth for free. And thanks again to Pies for sponsoring this episode of the RayWenlit.com podcast. Now, Jake, your 20 minutes is on the clock. Over to you. All right. So I have spent um, some time ever since WWDC playing with the new Swift Playgrounds app and kind of learning about some of the new features available in the Playground format. For me, this is very like very exciting. I, when they first announced Playgrounds, I was very excited. And then I jumped in, and I think I've mentioned this before, I jumped in, and it didn't quite do everything I wanted it to do. It was still kind of new and limited, and I kind of my, my enthusiasm waned. With this new iPad version, I am super stoked about this. So um, have you guys played with the Playgrounds app? 
Um, I have a little bit. Uh, I actually went and bought a new iPad Pro so that I could, which I was very excited about, um, but not extensively. Have you, Mick, have you had any time? To be honest, I, I haven't had any time. I mean, I've, I've watched the keynote and I've seen them the talk about that. And I've obviously, I mean, I follow uh, the likes of iMore and uh, The Verge and, you know, that kind of web presence. And obviously they've talked a lot about it. So I have, without using it hands-on, I have... Um, I have read a lot about it. I've seen videos and that kind of stuff. So I am really quite familiar with it. Just beyond, like, just not quite got to the point where I've actually touched it and felt it. Yeah. So, so I'll just real quickly for people that are still unfamiliar. I'm probably everybody saw the keynote presentation that's listening, but the the app itself is you know a code editor with a kind of live view, a lot like the playgrounds we've had so far, but running on the iPad. Um, but it has some cool touch interaction that they've added. So one of the coolest things is there's an auto completion bar. Like when you're texting, you've got these auto completion options, you've got these auto completion options. And for somebody who is new to code, I think this is going to be a profound help because it gives you kind of the function names and the variable, like the method names kind of available at any given time. So it's context sensitive. So if you, you know, if you type out AV foundation opening bracket or whatever, AV capture session or whatever, it'll give you kind of the different initializers as autocomplete. And so at any given time, you kind of have a scoped set of options to, to say, you know, what could I possibly type next that would be valid? Um, so I think that's going to be huge for people learning a new API or people learning to code in general. Another cool thing is that they've got a lot of like interface, you can touch on a number and it'll bring up a little input pad and then there's a wheel. And so you can grab the wheel and just spin the wheel and it will increment that value up and down. You can type in, you can put lip image or color literals in that'll interface with touch. You can drag loops in. So, and then you can scope the loop by just dragging the bottom of the loop down and it will just encompass whatever chunk of code you've wanted it to, to grab. So the, the experience of interfacing with a code editor in touch has been very well thought out. And there's a lot of really fun, cool stuff that makes coding more tactile, which I, I really like. Jake, I don't remember. Is there sound as well on the playgrounds? I haven't noticed any. It could be that I'm, that my sound's just off, but I don't think so. That'd be cool though, wouldn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of I'm kind of interested in that notion that um, see the tactileness of and the kind of gamification of the coding process. I think it would be really helped by sound yeah, as well. That's interesting. Um, so and then there's a couple of other like sharing features. So you can take a video recording of whatever you've built and iMessage it right from the app. So those are kind of those are kind of some code level features that that kind of change the experience of of actually inputting code into the app. On the other side of this is the content that Apple's producing. And so kind of the flagship thing that we have access to right now is this interactive 3D game where you move a guy around and he collects gems. That's kind of the big, it's, it's a very beautiful, very well-designed game. And it's, I don't know, maybe I'm trying to think, I think it's 10 chapters of content with six to eight pages of code per chapter. And it walks you through kind of all the basics of coding. So like variables and, um, you know, control flow and conditionals and creating functions, all this stuff. So it's obviously targeted at kids, although it's, I mean, if you are an adult and you don't know how to program, I, I don't think it's, it's not too simple to be useful to somebody, an adult who doesn't know how to code. It's just very cute. And so uh, you can tell it's kind of targeted at kids. And I think that's very cool. But personally, for me, 
I'm more interested in some of the other examples that are shipping so far with the app. And I think there's way more to come. There's some placeholders for stuff that I haven't yet seen. But um, there's an example that's like a, a keyboard that you can play with and modify. And you can create different instruments and plop in different audio loops. So like people speaking. So you can create your own keyboard. Uh, there's another one that's a Conway's Game of Life simulator that's very fun. And you can go through, it's like four or five pages, and you can go through and modify it and play with it. And then there's one called Shapes, which is essentially a drawing app with some simple touch interaction. And it is a very, very simple, one of the nice things about the Shapes app is that we have this core graphics API that we can draw uh, in iOS. But the Shapes app, you can't put in, you don't have to um, cast variables to the right type. A lot of the, some of the kind of programming ugliness is is filed away and so it's a very smooth very easy to use simple api that you kind of can't mess up with and so for me those kinds of those kinds of applications are more interesting at both as somebody who would love to use an interface like that to learn a brand new api and as somebody who'd like to create some of those interfaces for other people both as a way to create you know new tutorial formats and just as a way, I'm interested in creative coding, kind of like what the processing community does. And I think for me, that was kind of the big wow with Playgrounds was like, this is a perfect environment for creative coding because you get this immediate feedback. Just before we move on any further, you mentioned processing there. Just for anyone that's listening that isn't aware of what processing is, could you just give a, a two-second spiel on that? Yeah, so processing is a programming environment based on Java but it was targeted at artists and students. And so the, the design philosophy behind it is to be very immediate, very simple APIs, very easy to use. And the end result is not necessarily to build, you know, banking applications, but to create either works of art or to visualize data or to do things that are kind of more visceral. And there's a whole community around the language. And there's, there's a lot of other related programming environments that kind of follow a similar set of functionality that people use to build uh, interactive installations in children's museums, things like this. And so it, I really enjoy that space. I like what people come up with in that space. And so um, for me, I'm hoping that the, the creative coding community will kind of latch on to, to playgrounds and we'll see some of that same kind of creative endeavor going on around Apple technologies. Fantastic. And how about its impact on uh, just generally increasing code literacy? Are you, are you excited to start recommending it to people that ask you how to get into coding? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Like I definitely, if I had a, you know, teenage friend or neighbor or, you know, cousin or whatever, I'd be like, you definitely want to look at this. This is a great way to get started. I'm, I'm personally so excited because I think that it will enable Swift to really catch on a lot faster than a lot of other programming languages out there, which is fantastic. Yeah, the more people, right, that use our technology stack, the the more rich the environment is, the more third-party libraries we have access to. So definitely hoping that it pulls a whole lot more people, the Apple ecosystem. How how rigid, you know, as you're working through these these guides that they give you to, as you said, you know, we've got the, the sort of 3D game and it's all about making the guy walk around. And I think in the demo in the WDC video, they wanted, they wanted to keep on walking, so they put it in a loop and that kind of stuff. How how rigid is that? Like, can you can you make a mistake? And then I think what I'm trying to get at is part of learning programming is learning about things that you do wrong and then how to recover from the things you've done wrong. And if the path that Apple is providing is too rigid in that 
they don't allow you to make mistakes in the first place, then you know you're only sort of teaching fifty, sixty percent of the the way rather than you know letting people stumble and then get back up and and figure out what it is that they've done wrong. So I'm just curious, having not used it, how rigid it is. Yeah, so it it's kind of up to the author of the content to to scope what the user can do. And I mean, the user, it's an open-ended text editor, so they can type anything they want. And the editor does give you um, little error messages and feedback if you do something wrong. Um, but those, right now, those error messages are, are pretty, they're similar to what you'd see in Xcode. So, uh, you know, a 12-year-old kid's going to have trouble interpreting some of that. Um, but the you can provide in the, and, and this is kind of, I think, what we'll spend the rest of our time talking about is the, how you build the authoring tools and how you build the, the structure. And so you can scope, for example, autocomplete options. And so you can basically say, hide all the autocompletes, and then you can say, provide the following. And so in the, in the example of that main 3D game that they give you, they only expose the commands you can send to the little character, your avatar. And so it's like move left, move forward, collect gem. That's all you get in the auto. And so you can type whatever you want in there, but you're kind of prompted to pick a valid command, right? Um, And so it's up to you as the author to decide how much do I want to expose and how much do I want to hide? There's also a way to provide a glossary, a way to do hints and assessment. So you can expose hints if they get stuck. And then if they complete a chapter, you give them like a badge that they've completed that particular chapter. And so there's some some kind of, like you say, kind of gamification and some progress reporting available to you. Again, and this is all based on the author. You can include that stuff or not as an author of a playground. So the new playground format is, it's called a book. And inside a book, you have multiple chapters. And inside of a chapter, you have multiple pages. Each page has what you'd have in a regular playground. So you have you have a sources folder that's code that is not exposed to the inside of the playground. It's just code that's there, utility functions and stuff that are there to be used and run and built on. But they don't you don't you can't view that code. And then there's a resources folder for you know whatever images, textures. 3D models, whatever you need. Those resources and sources folders, they can be scoped. So you can have a sources and resources folder just for a given page, or it can be at the root of the book and all of the all the descendants will have access to it. And then you also have an HTML-based cutscene. So at the beginning of a chapter, you can run through a series of HTML, almost like lecture or whatever. So like the period, if you, if you play with the app and you play with learn to code, you'll see what I mean. There's these, these great little animations that kind of teach you whatever, orient you to whatever the content of that chapter is. And then you've got different options that you can control how the interface presents itself. So things like, does the view of the running code, the app view, does it show up at the beginning does it fill the space? Um, should there be a picture behind it before it starts running? Things like that. So there's a what's called a manifest plist file that you can use to set up all these different options. Without making any promises, um, but so we have discussed playgrounds internally, albeit briefly, um, since, since their announcement at Raiseware. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, Jake, as an author, as a long-standing author of this site, because you've been around raywendlick.com for a very long time yeah. uh, and therefore have plenty of experience putting together tutorials and, and writing for books. So one question, but it's kind of in two parts. 
the first one is, do you think that uh, this would make a good format to deliver our tutorials in? And then the flip side of that is, how much more effort is it from what you've learned to put together an interactive um, tutorial for the Playgrounds app as opposed to putting together the, the written tutorial in the current format? Yeah, so the, I definitely, as you could guess, I think it is a, it's a wonderful <laughs> format for tutorials. I, if, as both an author of tutorials and as a person who consumes tutorials, I would much rather do it in a playground at this point. Um, but it is more work depending. So, I mean, on some level, you could just take a tutorial from, from the site the way it is now. Because the you know playgrounds, you can just put markup in there. And so you could just paste the text, right? And then have them have a section to write code and then have that code run in the live view. So on some level, it could be the exact same amount of work if you don't really adapt the format to take more full advantage. But, but obviously you would want to take more full advantage of the environment that you're in, which to me would mean doing a lot more uh, scoped code sections. So you can, I mean, the playgrounds we have now, we see this where it's like, some explanation, some theory, and then there's a chunk where you can type code in, and then there's a view that kind of gives you feedback on that code. And so usually you'd have a lot more little snippets and sections of code where you would be experimenting with whatever the concept was um, in that paragraph. And, and, that, and it could potentially be a whole lot more work. But one of the nice things about it is that you can, again, you can, I mean, we do this, uh, we do this on the site where we provide a sample app for people to get started because if we're trying to teach a particular scope of a concept that makes the most sense to teach it in the context of an app but we don't want to you know it's too much to try and teach them everything that's in the app and that's one nice thing about playgrounds is that you can provide i mean if we take again this learning to code example they've they've written a whole 3d game and then all the student is doing is typing commands in for the character in the game they're not actually writing code that modifies the game they're just scripting the action of the avatar you can provide a whole lot of code and content and give them kind of a playground an environment within which to work that's very rich so i mean the answer is it could be as much work or as little as you wanted to do it depending on how how you wanted to structure it i was going to ask you like you know not necessarily on the air but just you know what does ray think about this because i think it's amazing so i hope to see a, a lot of that come come from the site or from wherever you know uh, Jake, Jake, it sounds like um, with the the little work or, or much greater amount of work, it really seems to come into the verification and validation of that um, book that has been written, just making sure that if you're offering more uh, less experienced users kind of three autocomplete options that they can't back themselves into a corner that can't be retrieved from, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Yes. But I yeah. think it sounds fabulous as well. I think that it would be well worth the extra effort to create a more interactive and kind of exciting environment. Yeah, and I mean, even for people like us who are, you know, experienced programmers, the ability to jump into playing with a new API, and that wouldn't in the scope that wouldn't need to be a whole lot of code or a whole lot, but but just you know a set of snippets and a set of functions, and just be able to jump in and immediately see like, okay, here's how you structure a call to this API, and here's and get that immediate feedback. For me, that's really the the most satisfying thing about the format is that. You get this instant immediate results um, and, and possibly of the most yeah. exciting bits as well. That's that's pretty cool. Precisely, yeah. I mean, how sandboxed are these playgrounds that you run? Uh, just why I'm asking. Like, for instance, if 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 you know, in the future, we do adopt this as a platform, 
and let's say we wanted to convert our NSURL session tutorial because it's something that you could do in a playground. You don't need a fully fledged app to work with that API, but you do need to be able to make calls out to the network to show you know that things are actually progressing and working as as they would do in the real world. C can you do that? Can you reach out to the network, or do you have to? You know, is it a permissions based thing? Is it something that we put in a manifest? Is it just not there at all? I mean, like sort of how how high are the walls? I know we've talked about Apple's walls yeah. before, but sort of. Well, so that's a good question, and, and the answer is I'm not sure yet. So I'll give you a few examples of things I've tried to do that haven't worked, and they haven't stated that they won't work, but I don't know if it's that they're just not fully fleshed out yet or if certain things are not going to be available. So I've been working a lot with um, the stuff that I care about, which is AV Foundation and image processing. And one thing I can, I can write code to set up uh, a capture session, and it prompts me to give permission the way it does in a regular app. So when you, you know, when you open a capture session, the user's prompt to give permission to use the camera. So it prompts me to use, you know, give permission, but the preview never shows up. And so I don't know if it's because that's not going to be available or if it's just we're still in a beta. Another thing that I hit is that I tried to set up like a sea of cubes in a scene kit scene and it crashes after I create two. Now, in that particular case, I might be doing something wrong. I don't think I am. I've used SceneKit quite a bit, but um, obviously their app, the Learn to Code app is using SceneKit. I'm, I mean, I haven't validated that, but I, it, I can't imagine what, how else they would have done it. And it's got a lot more than two cubes in it. So I don't know what I'm doing different, but I've hit into lots of little bugs. And so I don't know if these bugs represent something that's not going to be available or if it's just something that's not fully fleshed out yet. So in terms of hitting the network, if I had to make a bet, my bet would be that you, you can do it now. And I'd be even more confident that if you can't do it now, you'll, you will be able to do because that's something that's pretty common. But I haven't tried that yet. So I don't, I don't know. For I mean, the, so if you touched on the, the crashing with sync then I think that, that is one of the things that will make me a little bit apprehensive about adopting this. So soon, because for me, this type of app, it changes the expectations of the person that's using it. It's like, for the content that we produce now, we make no bones about it. Even for the real beginner stuff, you are going to be working in Xcode. And, you know, like even just by getting somebody to open Xcode, you're setting, you're setting an expectation there. You're in, a comp you're in a proper development environment. You've got a compiler. Things, things are likely to go wrong. You're going to make, you know, you're going to see warnings. You're going to see errors, that kind of stuff. And everybody understands that and moves forward with that. But when you give, when, when you're given a, an app that is specifically designed for, I don't want to say specifically designed for, for teenagers or children, because that then like singles out that adults can't use it. And obviously, you've been having a whale of a time with it. Um, but you know it's designed at a, at a market that that isn't perhaps considering itself as a developer like our beginner people they might be a developer coming from a different language a different background but you know they have already made that that decision that they want to develop which is why they're opening xcode in the first place this is is a little bit different and therefore they might not understand you know like if it if if it suddenly disappears then you know it's crashed you know because you're a developer and you've got that instinct but you know, for somebody else, like that's that's just mystifying. I was typing this this code in what it's always typing, and all of a sudden, it's you know, it's it's gone or it's disappeared. Or I'm seeing all these error messages, and I just worry about the expectation that that sets. Yeah, and it doesn't. So it, just to clarify, it didn't crash the entire app, but it does throw up an error message that it doesn't give me any clue about what I've done wrong. And it, from my experience, I can 
read into it and be like, I don't know that I did it. It did anything wrong. It just, this doesn't work yet. But, but I mean, your, your point is the same, which is, I agree. If, if it doesn't have a certain level of reliability and professionalism, then it's probably not the right format. So I think it remains to be seen where it ends up in terms of once we get the, the full-fledged version, once we're out of beta, if everything works, I don't think they're going to include every framework, but I, Erica Sadoon has got some, some posts about the new Playgrounds app. She's done a lot of research, and, and one of them, she gives a list of a bunch of the Playgrounds that she can see. Uh, it's not Playgrounds, a bunch of the frameworks, and it's like Scene Kit, Sprite Kit, Core Audio, uh, you know, it's a bunch of stuff. Like I say, I, I know, for example, the regular Playgrounds, you can run, you know, NSU All Session in those. And so I think you could probably run them on the iPad. That's one of the things that's on. I've got this list of like, here's all the stuff I want to see if works. And that's on my list. So Okay, cool. And can we make sure that those yeah. Erica said on posts go in the show notes for anybody that's interested in this? Yeah. Okay, good. And just be, like, we really do have to wrap this up now. But last question. You mentioned then that it is in beta. But I'm assuming it's in beta but available on the App Store? Or is it just in a developer portal? Um, how, how did you... I it? don't remember. I don't remember if it was installed already on the on the beta distribution of iOS that I installed on my iPad or if I got it from the store. I don't think I got it from the store, but it, it was like the day after WWDC. I don't remember. Yeah, sure. Jake, I think you're right, oh, okay. um, though okay. I can't quite remember either. I think it came I think it came with iOS 10. Right, and I really am going to have to wrap this up uh, for this episode. Thanks again for joining us, Gemma. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Now, if you have any feedback or comments on the podcast, then please do get in contact via podcast at com. And don't forget to head over onto iTunes and leave your reviews because they really do help. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you all next time. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWendell.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.